VA's round-the-clock hotline can put veterans who are homeless in touch with the resources and support they earned through their military service. Call 877-424-3838. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of This Week at VA. I'm your host, Marine Corps veteran Timothy Lawson. This is episode 35, and we'll be speaking with Army veteran Jeremy Paris, who hosts the Veteran Resource Podcast. Before we get there, though, I want to spotlight some audio from a recent interview with Secretary Shulkin. The Secretary has been very busy and very involved with communicating the mission and the future of VA. He's been on several different networks, radio shows, and other programming, ensuring our veterans know and understand the vision VA has to better serve them. The following audio is from the Michael Medved Show and features the Secretary's thoughts on adopting the new electronic health record system and his inspiration to originally take this job. It, this is actually kind of exciting, and I know it's kind of wonkish, but what you're talking about, about this new initiative for the records of veterans, could really make a difference in people's lives, couldn't it? Well, I think so. We've had separate electronic systems between the military and the Department of Veteran Affairs. But if you think about it, we share the same customers. I know that everybody who leaves the military is going to come into the Department of Veteran Affairs. And so it only makes sense to me to have a single health record so that we can do the best job for our veterans. And uh, will this uh, save the taxpayer money in the process? I think it's going to save a lot of money rather than maintaining two different systems and having to perform the maintenance and the contracts. We can do this together as the federal government. Is it fair to say that that President Trump has given you every kind of encouragement and support to actually try to make a difference in the lives of veterans? Well, the president, right from his campaign all the way through now, has said that this is one of the most important things to him personally. He feels that we need to do a lot better for our veterans. And of course, that's why I agreed to take the job as secretary, because I share that view. And uh, he is doing everything he can to make sure that we honor that commitment. Well, and, and again, I appreciate it. one of the things I found out about you, and I didn't I didn't know this. You were born on a military base, weren't you? Because your, your dad was also a uh, military physician. Yes. Yes, he was. And, um, you know, service has always been an important part to my family. And uh, in terms of the service that you're doing right now, we, we remember those awful stories about people waiting and waiting and waiting and, and being sick and suffering without getting the kind of care they needed. What's been happening with your Department of Veteran Affairs to, to make sure that that doesn't happen anymore to the people who have made the ultimate commitment to serve their country? Well, I think all of us as Americans agreed that that was unacceptable, and it certainly was uh, extremely upsetting to me, enough so that I agreed to leave my job in the private sector and come here and help fix it. And I think we've been very focused on fixing that. We now have same-day services in every one of our VA medical centers in primary care and in mental health. And we've taken our wait times to not only improve them, but we've posted them so that everybody can see what the wait times are at every one of our medical centers. And we're going to stick at this till, till we make sure that there is never a veteran who is waiting for care that is harmed 
uh, in waiting for care. That just isn't acceptable to us. We want to thank Michael for talking with the secretary. And if you'd like to listen to more from that interview, head over to michaelmedved.com. This week's podcast brings us Jeremy Paris. Jeremy served in the Army in the 1990s and is currently working with the Veteran Artist Program and hosts the Veteran Resource Podcast. I've been connected with Jeremy for a while now, but this is our first time collaborating professionally. Jeremy is going to talk with us about his time in the Army, his transition out, getting involved with the Veteran Artist Program, and his journey into podcasting. Enjoy. Jeremy, Jeremy Paris, Army veteran. Uh, you're the host of the Veteran Resource Podcast. You're part of the Veteran Artist Program. Two things that we'll get into, but Jeremy, uh, each each guest on this podcast has one thing. Uh, we all have one thing in common: is that we decided to join the United States military at some point. Uh, bring us back to that decision for you. So when I decided to join. I mean, I was still 17 years old. I just graduated from high school, uh, and it was one of those last-minute decisions. Like, I didn't plan on it. In fact, when they came around my high school and they had everybody do the ASVABs, uh, I was one of those, you know, like the class clown kid, the the rebel. I had the, you know, long hair and leather jacket and, you know, earring with a battle axe on it and stuff. So... <laughs> They came by with the uh, with the ASVABs, and I used it to make pictures, you know, with the filling in the circles to make pictures. Um, so I had no plans at all to join the military. And uh, then, you know, I, I had a friend of mine who graduated a year before I did, and he went in the Army Reserves, and he came out, and he was always talking about, how great it was, you know, going to drill and doing this and doing that. And so it was kind of stuck there in the back of my head. And then when I when I actually graduated and I was done, it was only probably a couple of weeks later that I was having the what do I do now? You know, what what are my what are my options? What am I going to do? I'm living in Buffalo, New York and back then 1990, you know, I had the options like if you really made it and you were you were making great money. You were working at the toll booth or, you know, working in a factory, you know, doing something like that where you were guaranteed to be making good money for the rest of your life. And uh, that didn't appeal to me at all. So I said, you know what, I'm going to I'm going to go and see if I, I can make this work. And uh, and then I got my mom to go down with me and sign since I was still 17, and uh, I went in. What, uh, what did you enlist as? I was a personnel administration specialist, and okay. I, I got conned into that by my recruiter. If you're out, <laughs> if you're out there, know that you conned me. Um, <laughs> yeah, it, it was one of those things where in, in school I was taking the business track so I had taken typing one, two, three, and four, and I took accounting one and two. And so when I went to the recruiter, he said, okay, so what job do you want to do? And I said, you know, I want to be a soldier. I want to go in the woods. I want to shoot a gun. I want to, you know, camp out, do all that fun stuff. 
And he's like, okay, well, you know, everybody does that. But when you're not doing that, you need to be doing a specific job. So let's just go down the list. Administration, can you type? And I'm like, yeah, I, I type like 60 words a minute. And he's like, what? Well, you're in luck because we have a $1,500 bonus for mm. you if you sign up for administration. And I'm like, $1,500, you know, for somebody grew, who grew up dirt poor and is 17 years old, that's like a million dollars. Yeah. <laughs> Especially back in 1990. So I uh, I jumped on it and based my whole career on a $1,500 bonus. And, uh <laughs> For the next 10 years of my life, I tried to get out of personnel. Oh, that's funny. Uh, just the way you put that, this is funny. Um, so is do you so you served for 10 years, right? So from 90 to 2000? Right. I started off in the reserves and for I think it was three years or, or so, I was in the reserves and then my reserve unit closed down. And uh, they told me that I needed to either go to a different one that was like an hour away or I can try out with one of the other units that shares the same building on different weekends. And so one of them was civil affairs. And so they were like doing all of the stuff that I wanted to do when I joined the army. And uh, I went and tried out with them. It was my 21st birthday, I think. Yeah, I think it was my 21st birthday. Went out and did, you know, land navigation and the weapons qual and a rucksack march and a PT test. And I crushed all of them. And uh, they said, all right, you can, you know, we're going to switch you over and you can uh, you can come to our unit. And I was like, no, I, I like this too much. I want to go civil affairs active duty. And <laughs> so I... Went down and talked to another recruiter and got conned my second time where they said, oh, well, you know, since you're already trained in personnel, you know, it'll be hard to get you in at civil affairs. But we just put you in as personnel. And uh, once you get in, you, after about 30 days, you go to your commander and you tell him you need a 4187 so you can switch over to be civil affairs and you'll be all set. And, uh, yeah, you should have heard them laughing at me a month later when I was talking to my commander <laughs> for still Oklahoma telling him I wanted to switch over. And he said, yeah, you know, you know, you're in a shortage MOS. I'm like, what does that mean? It means you will always be personnel. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, that's how I ended up active duty and, uh, did that for another seven years. Yeah. Did, uh, did these two experiences, uh, influence your decision to get out? Uh, <laughs> you're gonna laugh at this but uh yes so uh my last ditch attempt was to get out of personnel was i tried out for special forces so i went to sfas and uh i was up in alaska at the time fort richardson and, and i made it through two of the three weeks of that training and then ended up getting out um i was pissing blood like cranberry juice and, uh, and you know, they said, yeah, well, you know, you could stay in if you want. And I'm like, yeah, I'm done. I'm done, <laughs> I'm done with this. I'm out. And yeah. So then I went to Fort Meade after that and, uh, Fort Meade, Maryland. And this is where I've been ever since. But my decision to get out was, well, you know, 
I'm sick of being in the cubicle life. I need to get out and find something else to do. And, you know, I, I, I like technology. Maybe I'll go that route. And so I put myself through uh, the Microsoft certification courses so that I could go and, uh, you know, just work on computers and do things like that. Yeah. And what did, I, what did I do? I get out and immediately go in as a government contractor doing computer work in a damn cubicle. <laughs> <laughs> and I did that for another 16 years. Wow. Do you um I mean I you know you're 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 sort of you're laughing at your position in in personnel, but do you do you have an experience or a story from your time in that's sort of like the epitome of your of your service, your uh maybe a story that uh that you recall more often? Well, uh I was fortunate enough when I was up in Alaska, they had a failing uh, training unit. So the, the training NCO was not doing a good job. The brigade came down to our detachment, and they they gave failing grades across the board for, you know, they weren't doing anything right. So my first sergeant gave me the opportunity to go up and be the new training NCO. And uh, so... Moving into that position, I was, you know, in the office right across from the first sergeant. I was able to be mentored by him on a daily basis. And from that point on, I, I learned so much about, you know, just the way that the unit ran and the way that, you know, the, the interaction between the de- detachments and the brigades and in uh, all of the I guess office politics that happen and, and the way that decisions are made, and uh, and I also got very good at being known by uh, people higher up because whenever the commander would come in and say to the first sergeant, uh, first sergeant living good, uh, you know who do you got this week or who do you got this month for soldier of the month, and he'd be like uh, Sergeant Paris is going. And, uh, you know, so anytime that, that, uh, he didn't have somebody, I would end up going to the board and then I would advance to the soldier of the quarter and soldier of the year. And, and, uh, so I kept getting known for that, even though I (laughs) wasn't even, wasn't even trying to, but he told me on day one of the job as training NCO, he said, you know what my job is, right? I'm the first sergeant you know what your job is? And I said, uh, training NCO. He said, no, your job is to make sure that I don't look bad. And, uh, <laughs> it was, that's what I did. All right. Very well. <laughs> when you got out in 2000, um, you know, you said you put yourself, uh, through training and then went to it and back in the cubicle. Did you experience any sort of emotional crisis from after your separation? Like many veterans do, you know, I, when I got out, I, didn't realize I didn't realize it because I got out and I went into the government contracting world and luckily I was there with one of my army buddies he he got out a couple months before me and he ended up getting me into the company that that he was working for so we were working together still and we saw each other every day so it was like I still had that peer support that I had when I was in but then Within a couple of months, everything else around me was started to change. It was starting to be very different from being in. 
And, you know, I found myself starting to get lazy, you know, because you don't have to be anywhere at uh, 5.30 in the morning. You know, I can choose to go and work out, you know, after work maybe. And then after work comes and it's like, yeah, maybe I just won't work out today. <laughs> and uh, you find yourself, you know, falling out of the habits that were ingrained in you. And and also all of the people that I hung out with, they were now going and being stationed at other places. They were, you know, moving away from me, who is now stuck here at Fort Meade area. Uh, you know, they they were going other places and I was stagnant. I was staying here. And so I started to really miss being in the military. And then, you know, that was before 9-11. And then when 9-11 hit, it was, you know, a whole different world. Yeah. Um, a lot of veterans, when they get out, um, struggle to find a renewed purpose, something that, something that sort of um, hand-delivered to us when we enlist. Is that uh, Did you find yourself void of that at all, or was your tra- did your transition into um, your contracting job, did that suffice? No, I, I absolutely found that to be true. Uh, I mean, when you're in, you're, you're serving. That's, that's what you're doing every day, and you know that. You feel that. And getting out, and e- even though I was working as a DOD contractor, and supporting, you know, the intelligence community, I still felt like I was supposed to be doing something else. There was more that I was supposed to be doing. I was supposed to be helping in a bigger way than just making sure that somebody could get into their email. And I didn't, I mean, I was searching. I, you know, I started to get into acting as a hobby just so that I could have something else to focus on something else that I was passionate about. And that led me to the veteran artist program because they were starting, they were brand new and they were starting a project called vets on sets, trying to get more veterans, uh, on movie sets. Excuse me. And so I went and I talked to BR McDonald and I said, this is great. I love everything that you're doing with this organization where's the website? Where can I get more information? And he said, yeah, we're uh, actually, you know, we don't have a website up yet. We're still working on it. And uh, and I said, well, I do websites. You know, I could knock that out for you. And from that day forward, I was volunteering. And, you know, I worked on the website. Then I moved on to work on other projects like the, the Pentagon exhibit. And we had a, a week-long workshop at the Smithsonian Air and Space Museum. Uh, where we had a bunch of different art organizations coming in and, and teaching veterans, you know, how to pulp your BDUs and turn it into art uh, on paper and, and things like that. Uh, and so starting to go down that road of, wow, I'm, I'm serving again, I'm, I'm making a difference, I'm doing things, um, that led me to finding my, my true passion when I was at the American War General's premiere down in D.C. because Veteran Artist Program was one of the sponsors, and just learning about all of the other nonprofit organizations that were there that were focused on on helping veterans, like I had no idea that they, that they existed. I knew about five of them, and I was 
I was working for one of them. Um, and so that was the realization that how can I have been in the Army for 10 years and then been surrounded by military supporting the DOD for another, you know, 10, 15 years. And, and I don't know about these organizations. You know, obviously the 20,000 veterans that are getting out of the military every month don't know about these organizations either. I need to find a way to get that word out. And, and that's when I, that led me to podcasting. Yeah. And, uh, man, do I love podcasting. You, <laughs> I, I do want to say the veteran resource podcast is a very well respected podcast in, in our community. So I, 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 uh, commend you on that, sir. Um, you've had a handful of guests, uh, that I know and respect. Corey Christman's a good friend. Johnny Dumas is a good friend. Bill Roush has been on this podcast and arguably one of the best episodes I've had here. Uh, Miles Miguelera, I know a lot of great guests that you've had. And um, every time I'm in a conversation with people about podcasts inside the veteran space, the Veteran Resource Podcast, uh, it gets brought up. So you've done a very good, good job with that effort over there, sir. Thank you. Thank you very, very much. Tell me about um, – I'm going to briefly talk about exploring podcasting in the veteran space because um, I know that podcasting gets more and more. And more I, I didn't think it could get more popular, and it seems like every month it does. Um, and I know that veterans are always looking for a way to contribute to the veteran space, and a lot of people are trying to choose podcasting. Um, so, just a couple of questions about that. When you just what was one of the biggest what was one of the biggest challenges you had in like the first uh, couple months of launching? What, what's a challenge that you had that you had to figure out to to help the podcast succeed and grow? You're talking about after I launched or before I launched? After you launched. After I launched. Okay. So, luckily enough for me, I joined Podcasters Paradise and I had the support group there of literally thousands of other podcasters that any time that I would get tripped up on something, you know, they would be there to, to help out. But, uh, part of it was, you know, you're going into podcasting and it's, it can't be about money, right? I mean, you can't go into podcasting thinking, I'm going to be rich, even though John Lee Dumas posts his numbers and he's making, you know, three, four hundred thousand dollars a month, all based on the foundation of his Entrepreneur on Fire podcast. But you can't go into it with that mindset of I'm going to make a ton of money with my podcast. And so I all the way through have been expecting to not make money on my podcast, uh, but almost everybody that I talk to in the group I mean, everybody in there, they've got business podcasts and they've got, you know, personal training podcasts and they've got podcasts on just about anything you could think of, but almost all of their advice on advancing to the next level was based on money. And so I found myself, I found myself after launching, you know, trying to figure out how how do I keep this going without going after money? And, you know, is this going to be a sustainable thing? And is this something that, you know, I'm, I'm going to be able to continue on for more than just a couple of months. Uh, and, and it was, I don't know if you've felt the same way, but when I was first starting off, I was doing everything. Uh, 
I was doing the editing. I was doing the graphics. I was doing the show notes. I was landing the guests. I was trying to do all of that. And, and trying to do all of those things is actually easy once you know how to do it. But when you first launch, it's, it's like driving a car when you first get your license and you're manually thinking about everything that you have to do. Okay, stop sign is coming up. You have to think, okay, put my foot on the brake. Don't press too hard. Check my <laughs> mirrors. Make sure that, that the people behind me aren't going to hit me. Like you, You're manually thinking about all of the things. After a couple of months of doing it over and over and over again, you're driving along. You're changing the station. You know, you come to a stop sign and you don't even have to think about the process you use to stop. It just all happens automatically. Well, that's the same thing here where when you first launch, it seems like you're manually doing all of the things like editing, going through and trying to remember, okay, I have to clip this piece out. Okay, so I have to put my mouse here. I have to select this part. I have to do this step. And then I do this and then I move this over. And it's taking like forever to get that done but then after a couple of months of doing that it's like you can blow through editing a podcast episode like nothing now yeah uh it's true the um i I always like to bring that up when i'm talking to podcasters because i've learned that podcast listeners are just potential future podcast hosts right because that's how so (laughs) many of us so that's how so many people get into podcasting is they listen to podcasts for a while and they're like, oh, snap, I should start on my own. Um, so I always like to have little bits of insight in there. Uh, the second question I'd have, this is specific to the veteran space, and this goes for this is for anybody who not only is, is considering a podcast in the veteran space, but is considering just contributing to the veteran space. How did you find your niche? How did you find your place in the veteran community in being able to both collaborate with the people around you, but also sort of own your own space, if that makes sense. So it's interesting. In in the podcasting world, like I didn't go into podcasting and then try to figure out what podcast I was going to do. I came from the other way where I knew what I had to do, which was I needed to find a way for veterans to find nonprofit organizations. And I didn't know if that was going to be a blog. I didn't know if I was going to, you know, start doing like a, a video channel on YouTube. I, I didn't know what I was going to do, but I just felt like this is what I should be doing. This is what I'm I'm called on to do to continue serving by introducing these veterans to these organizations that can help plug them into the community. And and I just happened to be. While I was brainstorming, driving an hour and a half every day, uh, commute to work, listening to tons and tons of podcasts, and while I'm listening to them, it's funny, I'm listening to the podcast, and in my head, I'm thinking, all right, so how do I get the word out? How do I, how do, I do it? How am I going to get the word out? Podcasting didn't even come up, didn't even, <laughs> didn't even register that like, hey, I can start a podcast. And and as I was listening and brainstorming one day, John Lee Dumas, at the end of one of the Entrepreneur on Fire episodes, he had a plug in there for, you know, I, you know, do you want to start, do you have a podcast you want to start? I can help you out. I, you know, I'm doing, I've got Podcasters Paradise and blah, blah, blah. 
And I was like, huh, this is maybe that's the answer. Maybe, you know, if I like podcasting this much, then maybe other people will too. I know that podcasting is growing. I know it's a growing media. Huh, maybe this is what I should do. And uh, from that point on, I mean, that's what it became. So uh, I think that <laughs> the answer there is that I stumbled into the niche uh, in podcasting that I found. Yeah. Uh, to, you said uh, earlier you said you didn't want to go into po- you didn't want to go into like the growth of your podcast without having to worry about money. Let me tell you the best way to be a podcaster and not have to worry about money: get a federal department to hire you and then ask <laughs> you to do a podcast. That's the best way I've learned. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, that worked out pretty good for you, but you had, uh, you had a good, what, handful of other podcasts before then? Yes, I was a serial podcaster before I came to VA. Um, all, some, some good, some bad, uh, but it, uh, it, all, it all led to this, that's for sure. Um, what have you, what's, what's something about the veteran community that you've learned since doing your podcast? So something that has stood out to you about the veterans and the veteran community that you've learned specifically through your podcast? Well, what I found, and this is something I did not expect I was going to, I was going to find, but in talking with all of these nonprofits, I think that I was only 25 or 30 episodes in when I came to this realization is that there was an underlining thread in what many of these organizations were saying. And that was that you know, they would tell a success story about somebody who was, you know, maybe they were they were spiraling down or they were on the brink of suicide or maybe even they attempted suicide. But then, you know, they somehow got plugged into that organization, whatever, whichever organization it was. And, you know, they not only survived, but they thrived. They became a a leader in their community by plugging into this organization and you know ended up like either starting their own nonprofit organization after that or they became a leader in that nonprofit um something along those lines i kept hearing organization after organization after organization and you know it, it's something that i wasn't i wasn't aware was happening um you know, I, I didn't know that by by plugging into, you know, organization X that has nothing to do with preventing suicide, you know, in veterans. They, they have nothing to do with it. But just by being there, by having that camaraderie, by having that feeling of service and by having that that reason to jump out of bed excited in the morning – that that's what it was doing for him. Yeah, that's a really great point. I um, I've heard similar stories like that, but it hadn't really dawned on me that that was a, a theme across uh, VSOs and, and other veteran organizations. But you're absolutely right. There's a um, you know when you ask a veteran what do you miss the most about the military, I think 99 times out of 100 you're going to hear camaraderie and. I suppose it, it doesn't matter if the nonprofit is, uh, you know, 22 kill that's specifically trying to address veteran suicide or, uh, you know, if it's, um, you know, uh, 
Oscar Mike, which is just trying to get people, trying to get veterans to uh, adapt to sports games. Uh, that there is that sense of camaraderie that, and uh, the the mission I suppose is different, but maybe not. You know, like the mission on paper is probably different, but the inherent mission's you know really the same. Yeah, they've, they've got great byproducts. Yeah, um, let's let's talk a little bit about the veteran artist program. Now, you the VAP um, recently collaborated with the with VA's Center for Women Veterans. Um, to do the Women Veterans Art Exhibit. I know that, uh, that you had a hand in that. Um, you're a senior producer over at VAP. Tell us about um, just sort of your responsibilities at VAP, sort of like wh- how you contribute to the, the program, um, and then um, what what the mission is over there. Uh, actually, uh, I'm, I'm newly, the oh. exec- newly the executive director of the Veteran Artist Program now. Well, your website needs to be updated, good sir. When I did my homework, <laughs> I was told that you were a senior producer. I apologize. Congratulations on the promotion. What do Thank you do you. over there as the executive director? We're 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 talking literally a couple of days. So yeah, okay, uh, I don't feel so I bad anymore. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't had the opportunity. Yeah, I was acting executive director during uh, during the entire uh, teaming that we did with the Center for Women Veterans. Um, Kayla came to us and she had this great idea uh, that she, you know, she wanted to do something through art specifically for women veterans for Women's History Month. And it's also the 100th anniversary for women being allowed to serve in uh, the military with full rank and pay. So this is a, a very important year for this. And she thought that doing something with art would be great. And so we teamed up and we came up with the idea to put out a call for submissions to our artists and to have our women artists submit artwork that we would then go through and, and do the painful process of, of selecting 10 that would be in the exhibit and 10 honorable mentions. And uh, let me tell you, we had 400 submissions of art that came wow. in. So uh, we we weren't expecting such a, a big return on that, but uh, needless to say, it wasn't easy. And uh, we went through and in the ten uh, art panels, which each of the art panels had a picture of the artist in uniform and and how they are now, and it had their artwork, and then it had their bio at the top. But it also had an interactive feature where you can download this augmented reality app and then you can put your phone in front of one of the art panels and it would play a video of that artist talking about their service and talking about their art which was pretty pretty awesome and uh so this was supposed to go up in 10 different va medical centers around the country and that was the extent of what the plan was for this is this exhibit but word got out, and people loved it, and it ended up going up in 10 Starbucks around the country. Yeah. And it ended up going down to Jacksonville for the Players' Championship with Birdies for the Brave. And it went to the Intrepid Museum for Fleet Week. Uh, and now it's going to more VAs every month. And this thing, this thing has some legs. 
people love this exhibit? Well, I think, I think we, I think we, just as people, we really appreciate people's ability to express themselves, right? And I think that veterans, especially, are interesting in that because um, I think we generally view the veteran experience to be unique and complex, and um, whether the art is reflective of their service or just of their personality in general or just of their creative um, uh, creative flow, um, I think that there's uh, a lot to be respected about uh, veterans' contributions into, the, in, into art. And um, I know that any time that Anytime that we've done um, pieces or stories on some on a veteran who is in uh, who is in the arts, it always gets uh, really great reception. Absolutely. And when I was down in Houston uh, at the VA Medical Center, they had a, a big um, celebration for the exhibit with a bunch of other local art there, and it was great. And uh, Natalie Lopez came out, and she had her art up on the wall, and uh, one of the congressmen came out and he was looking at it with Natalie and, you know, he, he started to ask questions. He's like, here's, here's what I feel when I see it. Here's what I'm getting from your art. And then he, he's like, you know, how far off am I? And, and it started the conversation and then they were talking for a good 20 minutes or so. And it was that, that whole Thing. Like when, when I got up to, to speak, you know, that is what I spoke about was the fact that, you know, the congressman laid it out as a perfect example. It, the art doesn't tell the full story, but it tells enough of the story that it starts the conversation. Yeah. As you're absolutely right. We had uh, Deborah Russell, one of the finalists on the podcast um, earlier, uh, and you know, her, she's into photography. She did the photo of the dancing woman and we slowly got into that and her photography. And, you know, by the end of the, the interview, you know, she was talking about some more traumatic experiences she had when she was in the military and what, how that feeds into her need to be in photography and stuff like that. And while the picture of the dancer isn't necessarily represent representative of her experiences, it, was the entryway into that conversation and helped us get there and it ended up being a really powerful story. Exactly. And that's all it needs to do is it needs to start the conversation, which is what everybody everybody should be doing. And art is communication. So for for anybody who's listening that is an artist, what is the veteran artist program to them? What what is there a way that people can be involved? Are there events that people can attend? If you're a veteran artist, how do you connect with VAP? Yes, yeah, so the veteran artist program is there to foster, encourage, and promote veteran artists. And we've got people in the VAP community who do just about any type of creative thing you could think of. There's actors in there there's filmmakers there's opera singers there's people that are doing things with glass and metalwork and you name it they're in the community so i would invite anybody who is creative and you're you're a veteran come on into the community and we've also got people who are non-veterans who are supporting the veteran artists in there as well uh, to get in the community you can go to veteranartistprogram.org/community and it's going to take you over. It's a closed Facebook group, and people are in there 
every single day, sharing their artwork, they're communicating with each other, they're collaborating, and they're sharing opportunities as well. Uh, and, and us uh, the, on the staff, we put opportunities in there all the time. And then we also have people that are with other organizations that post things all the time. Uh, so I would invite you to, to come into the organization uh, and, you know, just start, just start talking, just start a conversation or just comment on somebody else's. And you're going to find that the community becomes a very close knit group of people that are supporting each other every single day. What discipline or skill set from the military do you bring over into your current uh, efforts, either with VAP or the podcast, um, that help contribute to that success? I think I've got a, a number of them, especially being personnel. Uh, I'm, I'm able to um, have the whole big picture type view of you know, where we can be going as an organization. And uh, we've got some really amazing things coming up in the next year that I can't really let out of the bag just yet. But uh, we're we're working on some. Um, one of the things I'll, I'll just I'll just put this out there that we are working on a way for mentorship to happen, uh, so that veteran artists can learn from established artists, veteran and non-veteran alike, out who are making a living with their art, they can do one-on-one -on -one conversations with these people and, and ask the questions that they have. How do I set up an exhibit? How do I do this? What do you do for taxes? How do you set up a business entity? You know, whatever your yeah. questions are about selling your art, about making a living from your art, they're going to be able to have a mentor to, to do that. And that is what we found in talking with the community that, people were were really looking for they were looking for the opportunities and they were looking for the mentorship yeah that's cool what uh and this may be a difficult question for you since you speak to so many veterans so often but uh give me one or two veterans inside the veteran community that really have you excited right now you really admire what they're doing well i, I would say that uh in, inside the veteran community we, we've got jeremiah france who I, I just learned about not too long ago. He's a veteran artist. He created Flag of the Fallen. Uh, and I don't know if you if have you seen that yet? It's I don't pretty think impressive. So. It's made with uh, bullet shells, and there's one for every person who died during Iraq and Afghanistan wars. And it's it's been welded into a waving American flag. Uh, oh well, in his school where where he's going, they put it up on a, a Facebook video, and it got 1.8 million views in a two week period. Holy smokes! And so, uh, I was able to connect with him and find out that he was in fact a veteran, and brought him into the veteran artist program community, and uh, we were able to have him and the flag at the Intrepid for Fleet Week, and. It was a, a big draw to get people over to the tent. We were the first tent when people walked in, and they would immediately come over and check it out, get their pictures taken with it, and then 
they would from there be able to go in and look at all of the other art that was in the tent and, and see that. Um, he's done a number of other things that I, I think are really cool and really they take a lot of imagination. And uh, he's looking at working on a new project that I can't wait to see uh, get started. Um, and then uh, there, there's so many other amazing artists in there. Um, Pamela Corwin, she does these wildlife pictures and, and uh, there's, let me see, um, Bernie, who is also out at the Intrepid. She is pretty fantastic. Uh, she was a lieutenant colonel. She was in the Navy and the Air Force. Uh, she has this one picture that she did of somebody jumping out of a plane. And I was like, wow, this is an awesome picture. She said, it's actually a self-portrait. And I'm like, really? She, and she has over a thousand jumps herself. Huh. Uh, she, and she actually uh, was part of the team that broke the world record for the most amount of women jumping out of a plane at one time. Huh. Uh, so uh, people like that completely inspire me and, and keep me motivated to, you know, build up the veteran artist program community as, as big as I can and, and offer, you know, as many opportunities for them as I can. Yeah, absolutely. Jeremy, I really appreciate you taking the time to, to join us on this week at VA. If people are interested in hearing more from you, where can they find the veteran resource podcast or reach out to you? The veteran resource podcast, you can find at veteran resource podcast.com. It's also on iTunes and Stitcher and Google Play and really anywhere that <laughs> any any of the podcast players. Uh, but the, the easiest way is just going to the website. And then for the Veteran Artist Program, you can go to veteranartistprogram.org. And if you want to get in the community, just add a slash community at the end. Wonderful. Jeremy, thank you so much for your time. It's uh, It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much, Tim, for having me on. There are nearly 2 million women veterans who served and deserve the best care anywhere. VA is dedicated to meeting the unique needs of all women veterans. VA offers comprehensive primary care, specialty care, mental health care, and women's health specialty care, such as advanced breast and gynecological care, maternity care, and infertility treatments. At each of the 168 VA medical centers nationwide, a Women Veterans Program Manager is available to advise, advocate, and coordinate care for women veterans. Women veterans who are interested in receiving care at VA should call the Women Veterans Call Center at one 855 VA Women or 1-855-829-6636 or contact the nearest VA Medical Center and ask for the Women Veterans Program Manager. For more information about benefits and other services for women veterans, visit www.va.gov slash womenvet. I know you've heard us mention the Center for Women Veterans many times on this show, but I truly feel like it's one of VA's best resources when it comes to serving a specific segment of the veteran community. The work they do there is powerful. As Jeremy mentioned, they held the 2017 Women Veterans Art Exhibit. They continue to advocate for women veterans, and their director, Kayla Williams, is always out there communicating their mission. Visit va.gov slash womenvet for more from the Center for Women Veterans. 
Today's veteran of the day is Air Force veteran Andres F. Rodriguez. Andres was born in Havana, Cuba in 1938 and immigrated to the United States. He joined the U.S. Air Force in March of 1962 as an aircraft mechanic. After a successful career in the military, he went on to work for NASA and had a successful career there as well. Andres recently passed away this April. We honor his service. To read Andres' full write-up and to nominate your own Veteran of the Day, visit blogs.va.gov. That wraps up episode 35. Thank you for taking the time to listen. If you have a question you'd like to have addressed here on the show, tweet them to us using hashtag VA podcast or email us newmedia at va.gov. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at DEPT Vet Affairs for more stories from our community. I'm Timothy Lawson, signing off. <laughs>